there it is. The theme song which tells you that you're entering the steam room. Charles Barkley, Ernie Johnson. This is episode, what, 200 and something? something 200 and like something, the most watched podcast in the world. And listened to. The most enjoyed. Uh, or second most. Is it? Maybe we have risen to the top now, Chuckster. I don't know. It's possible. Well, listen, I think, you know, Ernie, I think because people haven't seen us on television, we just getting spread by word of mouth. So it's not going as fast as it would be if they seen us on television doing the playoffs. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, but we welcome all your loyal steamers to uh, episode, I guess it is like 22 or 23, somewhere around there. We appreciate you being with us. We've got a great show coming up. Killer Mike's going to be on. I can't uh, wait to interview this guy. He's been yeah. amazing doing this uh, pandemic and all this civil unrest. I cannot wait. Yeah, Kenny Smith also going to join us. I can wait for that. Tim Kiley also makes an appearance. Uh, okay, I, I, I look forward to that. <laughs> and of course, we'll have uh, Chuck's answering machine to close out uh, the podcast, The Steam Room. But we begin, as we always do, with the thing that uh, Chuck likes to say more than anything else. First of all. First of all, you know you have a lot of money when you get hunting nut Cheerios. I've had the regular Cheerios. First of all, you know anybody ride a motorcycle who makes millions of dollars is an idiot. First of all, zero plus zero is zero. Actually, I got two first of alls today. The first one, I want to give a shout out to 100 years of the Negro Baseball Leagues. I actually had the pleasure, one of my neighbors played for the Birmingham Black Barons. He actually just passed away about a month ago. He was Mr. Leroy Miller. I was not aware of that, Chuckster. Ernie, one of the nicest men ever from Leeds, Alabama. And he always talked about the Birmingham Black Barons. And he was a great person. Obviously, he was a hell of a baseball player. And I see uh, all the living presidents did a really nice tribute to the guys. And I actually, believe it or not, one of my really good friends, Beth Marshall, works for the great Hank Aaron. Right. And she gave me a chance to say hello to him the other day, and it was a highlight of my day. Wow. Every time I talk to Mr. Aaron Ernie, it is one of the coolest experiences of my life. And I just want to give a shout out to those men who did a lot of heavy lifting to put these guys in position today to make a lot of money and be rich and famous. But shout out to the old Negro players. We should have had baseball hats on so we could so we could yes. do the tip of the hat. That was yes. a really nice touch from the uh, from from coast to coast. So that's uh, so shout out to those guys, man, and uh, rest in peace, Mr. Leroy Miller. And secondly, yeah, Ernie, can you believe me and Bo Jackson and Nick Saban and the group Alabama had to do a PSA in Alabama for those fools won't wear a mask. I have I have not seen this man. Is it? Did you just shoot it? If they just started running in the last couple of days. America, wear a mask. It's not just about you. It's not just about you. It's about everybody around you. Don't be selfish. If you're gonna go out in public, please wear a mask. If you're gonna go to the supermarket, you're gonna go anywhere out to dinner. I mean, obviously, you got to take it off to eat your dinner or take a drink. But listen, if you're going to go in a public place, please wear a mask. Doesn't take that much. You like this one, Chuckster? I, I like it. Well, anything that's going to cover your face, Ernie, is always good with me. 
That's the money maker. And, that's, and that's, that's the and, money maker. Well, you get ready to be homeless. Cheryl Ann making this. My wife has made 700 masks for the hospital wow. over here. And she's and so she personalized this bad boy with the uh, bow ties. Cheryl Ann, is, uh, I love her civic duties. But, man, just wear a mask, people, if you're going to go out. Listen, I understand if you're going to be by yourself or whatever. But if you go in a public place, have respect for other people and please put on a mask. You're not doing it for yourself. You're doing it for the other person. So you're not spreading anything. And it's not a political statement, folks. It's just a health statement that you, that you care about other people and that you don't want to spread. It's really not that hard to do. And if you don't want to wear a mask, don't go out in public. <laughs> that's, that's there you go. My best advice. There you go. But if you're going to go out in public, uh, I hate to be redundant. Please wear a mask. Uh, it's a shame that we had to make a PSA because anybody who's not wearing a mask right now, uh, they're just an idiot. I mean, you see all these numbers spiking. You look at, I think, Florida, Texas, Georgia, and California all had the single most in the last couple of days. And this thing should be going down. It should not be going up. Hey, I got one more thing to throw out at you here in our first segment. Yes, sir. Shout out to Maya Moore. Maya Moore, she got my man out of prison after 22 years. First of all, I've only met Maya a couple times. For her to be arguably the best women's basketball player in the world and to take time out of her career and life to spend the last few years trying to get this man out of prison, that's amazing. And, and, and I'm happy for the, my man. Jonathan Irons is his name. Jonathan Irons. Jonathan Irons, but listen, if Maya Moore hadn't have been great and amazing, this clearly wouldn't have got the attention that it deserved. So I, I, I appreciate you reminding me about the Maya Moore. So Maya, congratulations to you and Mr. Irons. Man, that's an awesome story. I used to watch uh, Maya play high school ball at uh, Collins Hill High School up here in Gwinnett County where I live, and she would just obviously dominate. And then to see the success she had in college and then in the pros, and then just to take all of that and put it on the shelf for a time and say, this is more important than that, and that this requires all of my energy and all of my time. I'm not going to split time you know, with the sport that I love. This was, you know, she's a woman of great faith and realized it was time to step away for a while. And then, boy, to see that image yesterday when uh, Mr. Irons walked out and Maya was out there, it's like, that's exactly why she took the path that she did. So well done, Maya Moore. And, well uh, done. And congratulations, Mr. Irons. No doubt. All right. So uh, we've got a couple of guests to get to, and um, we will do that uh, immediately. I didn't want to come, and I don't want to be here. And I have nothing positive to say in this moment because I don't want to be here. But I'm responsible to be here, so I'm duty-bound to be here to simply say that it is your duty not to burn your own house down for anger with an enemy. It is your duty to fortify your own house so that you may be a house of refuge in times of organization. And now is the time to plot, plan, strategize.
strategize, organize, and mobilize. That was Killer Mike. That was the end of May. As protests were ongoing in the city of Atlanta after the uh, George Floyd killing, and it was as powerful an eight minutes as you could possibly watch. Killer Mike joins us now here on the Steam Room. And as we tell all of our guests, Mike, please keep your towel on. And, um, <laughs> and in the interest of total transparency, and I said this on the air when we were doing an NBA show a few weeks ago. Look, I had not heard of Killer Mike. <laughs> Look, it may not surprise you at all to nah. <laughs> for this 63-year-old guy to admit, I didn't know who Killer Mike was until that night when my 35-year-old son, Eric, texted me and he said, are you, he said, are you watching Killer Mike? Then I watched this. It was so powerful. And so I said on the air, look, I'd never heard of Killer Mike, but now I'll never forget him. It was that impactful where you went with on the cornerstone speech and where you went with it's your duty not to, to burn your own house down, be a house of refuge. There were so many points that were so well made for a guy who said, I don't want to be here and I don't know what to say. No, you, you knew what to say. What was that night like for you? First of all, let me qualify. I was talking to Atlanta at that moment, happy that it spread to the wider community and that there were lessons for us all to learn. But I was talking to a city that has for over 100 years been a refuge for African-Americans in the South, have been a refuge for African-Americans from the greater nation because Booker T. Washington High School educated everyone from Lena Horne to Dr. Martin Luther King. It educated everyone from my, my college and high school teachers and administrators. My family is out of the very rural South. My family's not from Atlanta. My family's from a place called Tuskegee, Alabama, down in Macon County and shorter. And from anyone from there, you know, slavery is this close to me. So I understand how fortunate living in Atlanta is because my family's not from there. My family's from sharecropping to land ownership to being involuntarily used in a Tuskegee experiment to owning a farm, to becoming producers, to growing stores, to educating themselves, to coming to a place like Atlanta and setting up a whole nother legacy while still never giving up ownership of our lands in Atlanta. So I have spoken from a Black American experience and perspective that even people who look like me sometimes are not speaking for. I wasn't speaking just as a business owner or a member of the business class or entertainment class. I was talking as a class of people who migrated to Atlanta from a much deeper, much more brutal type of poverty even, and managed to establish themselves as working class and middle class people. So I'm speaking on as, as to a city saying that we have a responsibility and accountability to take care of one another in the city, to take care of ourselves, and to take care of the African-American community on a greater basis because we don't have many places like this. So what was going on in my mind, I, think, I don't think I was saying it as much as my ancestors and you know, what people call the Lord was speaking through me, and I'm glad the message came. Because again, I wouldn't have been there if my friend T.I. hadn't made me come. I would have been like, have, have, you know, good luck, Tip. I think that it is also my responsibility as an American to make sure, if I can, to be a part of the process of bringing this tapestry together versus ripping us apart at the seams. Uh, and everything didn't go good after that speech. You know, a lot of people on both sides took offense to what I said. People who are vehemently pro um, my community, I understand why. Because if you just listen to the first 
10 seconds and glossed over the fact that I said the things that you just said, Ernie, you would have missed my greater point that we have to plot, plan, strategize, organize, and mobilize because that's the only way you truly capitalize on the moment for it not to just be a moment in the continuation of a movement. So, you know, I appreciate you for, for knowing who I am now and hopefully I'll continue to do things to progress my community on my off days when I'm not singing and dancing for people like the son and others, you know? <laughs> I got you. I was in Atlanta during that time and I've seen you on some other shows since then. I just want to say thank you. Oh, man, thank you. Number one, amazing, brave, thoughtful, courageous, a bunch of words I can throw at you, but I just want to say thank you. Thank you. You know, obviously there's a lot of noise out here right now. What do we need to do going forward, not just in Atlanta, but everywhere around the country? On an individual basis, I need men and who look like me to start to form groups and circles where you have an opportunity to talk safely amongst yourselves and without the opinions and insert of others. And so that just means whether it's a church group or your Masonic Lodge meetings or your, your, your Greek meetings or just brothers that get together after the work. A lot of times, man, we walk around with a lot of pressure, with stress and pressure and things built up and we're not able to properly communicate and we need to. There needs to be on a legislative level on the local municipalities, police review boards. There needs to be a grand sweeping separator in terms of what the power that, that police and prosecutors have together as a team versus the, the regular people in the proletariat. So legislatively, we need to do something. I think from an economic standpoint, there are some companies that are doing business with politicians where if we don't like their, their, their policy, we need to let those companies know we're going to divest, we're not going to stay. On a very personal level, I think Black people got to take care of ourselves. Um, we're going to have to start to individually try to be excellent. I'm ready for us to stop playing defense. At a certain point, when you go up two points, you can't keep playing safe and trying to hope the other guy's not going to score three. You have to try to dominate that opponent. And right now, the opponent is systematic racism, bigotry, and evil that are allowed to kind of run range spread. Right now, the opponent is the state has the power to kill any of these three men that are on the screen, black or white. The state has the power to do that, and we don't have the power to hold the state accountable. When I supported Bernie Sanders, a lot of people didn't like Sanders for a lot of reasons. But one of the reasons that I did like him a lot is he wanted to create a special prosecutorial um, force that would have come out of the federal agencies that would have prosecuted men like the men who murdered Ahmad down in Brunswick because they felt emboldened because they worked for a prosecutor. It will deal with police like the policeman who sat his knee on a man's neck for eight minutes and 46 seconds. It will have a prosecutor that will prosecute that person because they don't have that local um, hodgepodge of buddyisms between policemen and prosecutors. And it would be a federal prosecutor, so it would not fear police unions on a local level for fear that they won't get reelected. I think that we need to start to hold the people accountable from a legislative. Economically, I think that we need to enclose our communities again, because what we're starting to see is that economics matter. Why do you know economics matters? Because every major corporation virtually has a commercial right now saying in some way Black Lives Matter. And if we control our dollar and direct it as effectively as we directed it in the 60s and directed our vote, then we could change public policy. In my lifetime, I've seen South Africa go from an apartheid nation to a nation of at least freedom and opportunity in theory because you had companies like Coca-Cola and Delta that would have divested um, because black people in Atlanta and around the nation were raising hell. So I think it's raised hell time, but I don't think that there's a big grand agenda that works in Utah and Alabama and Mississippi and New Hampshire and California. I think that the bigger answer comes out of very small local 
organizations that are already organizing on the ground in these places and for people who can help magnify that message doing it. So in Atlanta, I'm supporting um, the new the new Georgia project. Right. They get people out from the onion fields in Vidalia to the apartments, assisted living apartments in Atlanta. They get people registered to vote. They get those census done. They make sure people have representation in legislation. When you look at Gary Davis's Next Level Boys Academy, they take young men that are having problems communicating with one another or with their mothers and fathers. They get them in a room and help that. They help those boys in a therapeutic way, walking the young men. And in extreme cases, they've partnered with the county and state to take young men who would be facing two, three, four and more years in prison and give them a second chance at redemption. So I think from a public policy standpoint, we have a responsibility to hold police accountable, but we also have a responsibility to start making sure that young black men have the support they need at an early enough age so that we're producing husbands and fathers and uncles instead of fodder for the jail system to be used like mixed meat. On a very economic level, I think it's time that we start turning our dollars inward in our own community, supporting small and local business of people that look like us. From an educational perspective, I think that this country needs an educational overhaul because as we go into celebrating the 4th of July, Every American should know the first person that died in the Revolutionary War was a black man in Christmas Addicts. Why does that matter, Michael? If I'm five years old and my dad says the word nigger and I hear that word and I started to assimilate that word into my vocabulary, the minute that I learned that a nigger is the first person who died for this country to be what it is, I have a different respect. And that will, that will perhaps help me teach my father at five, because at that age, I'm sure that that's a word that shouldn't be in our household that these people are as American as we are and to be honored. So I think that there's a multi-tier thing we can do. I think if, if everyone does a little, we don't have to do a lot, but we all have to take individual account of our own bigotry, of our own prejudices, and we all have to start to work our way out of that and while pushing public policy at the same time. Hey, Mike, uh, going back to your childhood as the son of a policeman, how did that shape your view of law enforcement? I mean, my dad was my hero. My cousins who are policemen now are heroes to me. They're like walking G.I. Joe characters. I admire much of what they do. And with that said, had it not been for other police officers like um, the late Detective Williams, who was a police officer who was confined to a wheelchair because he was shot in the back of the neck by a 19-year-old man who was transporting. If, if it hadn't been for meeting officers like him or the guys that I work with at the Police Athletic League and getting young men into boxing, I would not have the faith in police officers as individuals because the system of policing in America is corrupt. The system of slave catching when which policing was invented out of is corrupt. The system that would allow Jeff Sessions to say that policing is a part of white Anglo-Saxon history and that philosophy goes to those two men who murdered their brother in Brunswick because they're not police, they just felt themselves deputized by their whiteness. The system is a corrupt system and we can fix that system. But as individuals, um, I have known and respected policemen that were in and outside of my family, so that allowed me to have a more fair and balanced approach. But when the Red Dogs, the former drug unit of Atlanta, were the Red Dogs, they kicked my ass twice for no reason. Didn't matter who my father had been, didn't matter <laughs> which policeman I knew, they whooped ass. You know what I mean? Yeah. You know, that kept me off those couple streets. But with that said, no officer of the state should have been doing that to a 15-year-old child. You know, you talk about voting and things like that. Two million less black folks voted in the last election that voted for President Obama. Yeah. What can we do about that? Well, we got to stop letting black voters down. I think that President Obama had a grand opportunity in his first two years um, to make some sweeping changes that would have been wins for the overall community, especially the black community. 
I think that um, those things were not taken advantage of. I don't think he totally wears the blame for that. I think his party abandoned him um, in those first two years. I think that he had the majority in terms of numbers to do sweeping legislation, but members of the Democratic Party were not willing to be as progressive as he could have been. And um, shame on them for that. Shame on them also for who ran after him and Bernie Sanders, so um, for not supporting him. I think that two million less black voters voted because they've lost hope and apathy is taking over all Americans, not just black Americans. Whenever I talk to a politician, one of the first things that I require before they ask me for an endorsement or ask me for advice is, what are you going to do? I want to, well, the question I pose to them is to give black people a win. We need a win. And, and I don't mean a win like a ceremonial victory of, of taking down a Confederate statue or renaming a high school. All those things are important to break the psychosis and the lie and the mythology of the Confederacy. A win is actually systemic change that will lead to generational growth in this country. Black people have always played on the defense. We've always played in the overcome. In 1865, when we gained our freedom, the seven years after that, in which we were allowed to fairly play in the American economy, we gained more land, more land in the mass, more land than we currently own now. We were tradespeople. We engaged in commerce together and we did well. Everyone wasn't, but our community was headed toward the right. And then with the Grand Compromise, in which we were sold out by the Union, the Confederacy took over, the Dixie Crash were born, we went through um, almost 100 years of apartheid. Even in getting freedom again in, in 1965, 100 years later, we still were playing the defense. You were playing catch-up. Instead of getting better schools, they put nine of your children in a hostile environment in school. Instead of getting um, equal, equal service on a bus, as I talked to my stepmother, um, who's 72, 71, 72 years old, she tells me about New Orleans where there was a block on the bus. If a five-year-old child came and moved that block back, no black person could sit in front of that. You know, so we've always overcome. I would like to see what would happen if all, if all things were fair and even, what we could truly accomplish that wouldn't get taken or removed or set back in some way so that we could become a more viable part of this country. And, and I did a Bloomberg interview yesterday and I, and I called, well, the day before yesterday, but I called back to say, I, I want to say this. You're talking to people who are bankers and who are finance people, and the numbers are what they understand. Cadillac almost went out of business. At the time, though, you couldn't go as a black guy. You couldn't walk in and buy a Cadillac. So I think there was a European guy that came over that ran the division of Cadillac. He didn't have the same, although racism is rampant everywhere. I don't think it is. He didn't have the same type of mind that the American white guys had. So he was like, they, these people want to buy Cadillacs. We're going to sell them Cadillacs. And Cadillac rebounded as a company essentially off the black dollar. If the black community is doing well economically, if we're, if we're giving equitable treatment and have the ability to participate in the American dream like everyone else, it is better for the greater community as well. After I finished telling her that, that I wanted to make sure that that was added because I'm talking to people who read Thomas Sowell, who read Milton Friedman and Walter Williams, I want them to understand in my terms that I think that the country is better if my community is better. She said the head of the Atlanta Fed chapter said the exact same thing. So the head of federal finance, of, of the feds in Atlanta who controls money, who makes sure money flows in this country, agrees. So I'm telling all Americans, regardless of what you look like, when the African-American community is a strong community from an education standpoint, from a, uh, from a political standpoint, from an economic standpoint, this country is a better country. So we all should have a vested interest in, in, in making sure that this community rises to the level that it should and could because it brings up the level of the entire country. When we do. Mike, when you talk about the cornerstone speech, 
and you encourage people to look that up. It was the the cornerstone of the Confederacy. Yeah, that, you know that whites for the superior race. And yes, when you think of the Confederacy now, and here you live in Atlanta and outside Atlanta in Stone Mountain, here's this big old piece yeah. of granite. <laughs> yeah, with Robert E. Lee and Stonewall Jackson and That's Jefferson cool. Davis. Yeah. Look, I moved down here in 65. Yeah. And that place has always been like, oh, have you been to Stone Mountain? Have you seen Stone Mountain? And people yeah. still go to see this big carving on Stone Mountain. Yeah. What should be done with that carving? So Frederick Douglass said in 1865, uh, everyone should have the right to vote right then. Because we didn't, what ended up happening was black men got the right to vote. They went in churches and voted in, in polling places and black women use their Second Amendment right to have shotguns or rifles outside to make sure that no clans were riding through or night riders. And they made sure that those men were safe with their right to vote on behalf of the community. But if Frederick Douglass, who was a hundred years in thinking ahead of his time, if, if we would have gotten their right to vote, then we would have seen the South truly move in a more progressive light, one in which even after slavery, the skilled labor, whether it was picking cotton or, or blacksmith and was black people, would have had to been dealt with fairly by the economic class. What we got instead was the women's suffrage movement and the abolitionist movement split. So you get a split of the women's suffrage movement who now turn into the daughters of the Confederacy. They start putting up monuments. They start um, reawakening this nationalism that although failed is very powerful because they tie it to hereditary and family values and things of that nature. The Confederate, the, the treasonous war that was a secession becomes a war of um, Northern aggression. And you, you have taught people for over a hundred years this false history. And it is hard to wipe away the romanticized version of that. I can't play basketball for shit. But because I was chubby and taller than a couple of kids, man, a few coaches wanted me to be Charles Barkley. Be Charles Barkley. <laughs> just couldn't happen. I was just fat. Knock me. It just wasn't going to work for me. They tried to get me to play football. I was more interested in reading Baldwin and rapping, you know. Um, so, but it's, it's hard not to feel like, you know, when you're like, yeah, I am an athlete. I'm just, just, but I didn't put in that work. I, those things just aren't true. I knew I wasn't. Chuck, I could just buy his shoes. And at some point in the South, we're going to have to understand that although the Confederacy has a place romantically in your heart, my tax dollars shouldn't pay for it being there. Because what it represents is a treasonous act of secession against the Union. And based on a cornerstone speech, not based on my opinion, it is steeped in the racism that natural law predicates that the white race is above and therefore entitled to um, put black people in servitude and bestiality. And that's not me saying that. That's me repeating right. what the vice president of the Confederacy said. So it's time to teach that true history. It's time to wipe away all public symbols that are not, that are paid for. Because I know white folk in the South, they're pretty stubborn. You ain't gonna get, you're not going to get them <laughs> Confederate flags that on 75 as you drive down trying to go to Tampa. That man who owned them 50 foot flags, you're not going to get him to take down his flags. I've been on that road, Mike. I've I know to slow down and mind my business on that part of 75. So <laughs> you're not going to get him, but... But there should not be Confederate statues and parks. In terms of Stone Mountain, it, what should happen, ultimately, I don't know. I think what's more important, well, ultimately, it should come down. But I don't know if white folks don't make that happen. Let me just say that. I can't say I trust Georgians enough to say, you know, with the Republican majority, that that's going to happen. But what I do know is that there's always been a black village out and around Stone Mountain for over 100 years. There is currently now one of the largest black business incubators in Georgia over there. So regardless of what you feel about Stonewall, Lee and Davis on the mountain, take your children for walks, 
enjoy some family time in the grass because black people have ignored this shit for over a hundred years. It has not stopped Atlanta from becoming what she became. It has not stopped a small family called the Blackmans um, from becoming a large family in Tuskegee and prospering. It has not stopped the individual accomplishments of the Beachy Islands with my wife and Trump. It has not stopped those things. Now, we've had laws that intended those things, and we need to change those. We've had economic disparities that we didn't deserve, and we need opportunity in that. We've had voting inequality and suppression, and we can fix those things. But in terms of a bunch of statues, whether they come down or not, um, it's, it's, it's cool if they do, but if they don't, I'm more concerned with money. I'm more concerned with political power and I'm more concerned with blacks actually taking accountability for our own pathway and not just being an afterthought of political party. Well, I, I just want to say this. Uh, number one, I admire you and respect you. And you're a perfect example of why you shouldn't judge a book by its cover. <laughs> and what, I, what, what I mean by that, if I introduce you to my friends, hey, this killer Mike, they're not going to be thinking, man, this brother got his stuff together. He's intelligent. He's articulate. You know, so I just want to tell you that, man, you inspire me. Uh, if I can ever, ever do anything for you, I just want to tell you, man, you're a perfect example about all this bullshit that's going on right now. But, you know, people say, like, well, I, I don't like black people. I said, well, do you actually know any black people? Exactly. And exactly. any person who get to know you and spend time around you, there's no way they can dislike you just the way you're speaking. So that's what I mean, man. That's why we should get to know everybody and not just say, well, I don't like this color. I don't like this religion. you got to give them a chance. You can't go by what we've been taught by history. Thank you for being you. I appreciate thank you, you for what thank you for what you're doing. And when, when we started talking about having you on the podcast a couple of weeks ago, Ernest says, oh, man, uh, you know, I, I, my son texted me about Killer Mike. And I <laughs> said, yo, man, when you hear this brother speak, and like I said, and that's brothers I don't want to hear speak. But you, you know, you know that. <laughs> I, I say, you can't give, hey, I say, hey, you can't give everybody a platform. And the, the, the thing that I'm starting to learn about you you're comfortable wherever you are. Yeah, you have to. Yeah, like you have to have, and I tell people, you have to have supreme confidence, supreme intellect, but you say, hey, you want me on CNN? Let's go. You yeah. want me on Bloomberg? I'm good there too. Yeah. Like when you have the intellect and the confidence, that you're like, I fit in any room, you're always going to be successful. So, man, I just want to say thank you. Well, thank you, man. Like my grandma used to tell me, man, pull your pants up and walk with your head up. <laughs> you know, I, I, I still have massive art to pull on my pants up, but I, I walk with my head. You know, and, I, and thank you. Thank you, Chuck. And, uh, You're welcome, no, brother. No, we appreciate you being on with us. And thanks for the heads up also on, uh, on Jane Elliott. Yes, man, you're, you're very welcome. Because, man, when I heard you say that on Colbert, I was sitting in front of my computer and I... And I watched, and I saw the the blue eye, brown eye, uh, yeah. what she taught in in the school, and and also um, just on the question of race. And, and she said, "There's one. It's the human race, and we're all in." Yeah. I'm yeah. telling you, at a time like this, Mike, it's just it just feels good to learn something you didn't know because I Absolutely. think it makes you, I think it makes you a better person. I think it gives you empathy, and I Absolutely. think it puts us all kind of on a road to. Um, you know, C.S. Lewis had said, you can't, 
you can't change the way it began, but you can you can change the way it ends. Absolutely. And I think what you bring to the table puts us on the road to that end that we want to see. So uh, so thank you much, man. It's been an honor to honor to speak with you. Man, it honors me as well. I just just Chuck, man, absolutely individual connections and relationships will help progress this nation faster and further. And um, Ernie, I, I firmly believe, and even though it sounds kind of blunt, white people should be teaching white people. And what I mean by that is if you get a chance to the white audience on the other side of this, please go watch um, the Jane Elliott Blue Eye Brown Eye Experiment because it is a white woman from Iowa. I don't know, I don't know if it gets much whiter than that. Um, <laughs> teaching teaching a, a class of, of, of white children um, in the 60s and in the 80s, what what the, the, the mythology of racism has created, right? By, by saying simply by this difference, somehow you're lower than me. Racism was only created 500 years ago when the Catholic Church gave permission to the Portuguese in Spain to subjugate Jews and Negroes in particular for these particular jobs and purposes. So we can get rid of this, you know, if we, if we are teaching this in pre-K versus teaching this in eighth grade. And to the individual relationship point that Chuck made, if we as Americans make it our purpose to seek out and, and ally and befriend people who do not look like us, that is the greatest connector in this tapestry and this quilt that is being made, greater than legislation, greater than economic interests. The personal connection between human beings is one. I don't believe we could have a better guest on the Steam Room <laughs> than we just had. Killer Mike, it's, uh, it's so nice of you to, to spend so much time with us. We appreciate it. Thank you, guys. Hey, Killer, I got to tell you, I got to call Van Jones and tell him he dropped down to number two as my second favorite guest. Uh, I talked to Van the other night, man. Thank you, Chuck. I appreciate you, man. Love <laughs> we'll see you, man. Thanks. All right. Love and respect, guys. Have a good day. See you, man. I meant what I said. You know, if, if somebody bring your friend home and say, Mom, I want you to meet Killer Mike, you're going to be thinking like, Mike might be a killer in real life. But the, he is so intelligent, articulate. I mean, Jeez. it's amazing, man, how smart he is. And like I said, I, I admire the fact that he's not afraid to go on any TV network and put himself out there. To have that type of confidence and, and, and sure of yourself, it's admired. Yeah, awesome stuff. We will take a break here on uh, the Steam Room and our old buddy, Kenny the Jet Smith, waiting in the wings. Wow. We went from to, to the mansion to the <laughs> projects real quick just then. <laughs> we welcome you back to the steam room. And as we, as we ask all of our guests, please uh, keep your towel on. Even that fashionable North Carolina towel being sported by Kenny the Jet Smith as he steps into the steam room with Charles Barkley and, and Ernie Johnson. And, and now the Jet using an Emmy Award to scratch his back. Oh, hey, what's up, guys? And, oh, I didn't know we were on. I didn't know we were on. And then being placed back on the world's most underused piano. <laughs> <laughs> I'm the only one in the house that doesn't play the piano. Everyone else, everyone else can play. I can bring every kid in here and they're going to play tunes and everything. And I'm the only one that's like, ding, 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 ding. That's all I know. Been working on your music. 
Uh, how you doing, Jet? I'm good, brother. I'm good, man. Uh, excited, optimistic, and cautious all at the same time. It's like it's like a gamut of like emotions that go through every single day, man. Chuck looks great in his. Are those new glasses? <laughs> no, these are these are. Hey, I got a bunch of glasses. Don't worry about my glasses. Hey, I will admit this. <laughs> I, I I actually it's so weird. This is the longest I've ever been in my life without seeing you three guys. Uh, there's just two of us. And I got to admit, it really sucks. I mean, because like even because like I say, I know I'm around you guys so much, and you get to know like you're part of the family. And this is the longest I've ever been in my life yeah. without being around you guys. And it's really crazy. And uh, obviously, there's a lot of crazy stuff going on, but I got to be honest for a second. I miss being around you, brothers. I do, too. I, I, I know exactly where you're coming from. And we will uh, we will be back together with a show next Thursday on TNT for an hour. But again, it's going to be one of these kind of things. Um, and then eventually... When they start playing basketball again, we're going to try to get together in the studio. I'm excited. Uh, like I said, I miss you guys being around. You know, just the it's the moments that's not on air that I miss. You know. Yeah, I know. Yeah, on air, we we. I mean, we could do that anywhere, but like all of those moments uh, that. Uh, well, Shaq is a moment. He's a movie every day. So, like, no, he's, a, he's a movie. He's a, like, a feature-length film. It's a film. It's a comedy. <laughs> it's a, like, it's a, everything you yes. throw on. And some, sometimes it's a great movie and sometimes it's horrible. But it's always, oh. it's always a movie. So, Jeff, obviously, uh, you're the only one that's got young kids. Well, Ernie's got some young, not really young. Grandkids. I got grandkids. Grandkids. But I'm saying, I'm talking like, when you got the kids, Kenny, <laughs> doing this pandemic, like, what do y'all do every day, all day long? It's, it's interesting because, you know, and it's two parts of it. Well, initially, you know, you're, you're in the house and you're quarantined so much. They start learning things about you that I already, I thought that they knew. You know what I mean? Like, like we start talking about, and I say, you know, things that happened to me in Left Rack City, Blah, blah, blah. And I'm thinking they know these things. They don't even know. So, like, early on, we were talking about, like, social injustice. And they were like, and they, they know me. I'm the guy who's, I'm driving 55. I, I no break the law. I'm like, oh, no, no, I love, you know, I don't have any, I never had altercations with the police officers. And, I'm, and I told them when they we talking, I'm like, yeah. You know, because in Left Rack City, the only time that I ever had a gun pulled on me was by a police officer. And they were like, what? You, daddy? I'm like, yeah, when, you know, and then, like, you're telling stories. Then I'm, even KJ, now we go to sports. You know, he's going into his senior year. He's like, yeah, he's at North Carolina. He's talking about the offense. And I was like, oh, let me show you. This is what we did. He had never seen me play a full college game, Chuck. Like, he had never seen it. And so I was like, oh, we got tapes. I had to dust them off. <laughs> and, and put pop them in. I had to find a VCR, <laughs> like and pop it in, and we watched a, a full game of me in college basketball. So, just we, you, you know, relationships have changed. But I, you, you, Charles is gonna love this. I taught my lawyer how to play poker. Oh, did you? I like it. <laughs> Why would you teach your young kid how, how to play poker? Him and London, London Seven. You know why? Because we had they. We, TNT sent us that gift with the chips. 
Yes, that was yeah, a long time ago. And so it was sitting around with house cleaning because now <laughs> we got time. And that box opens up and they were like, what is this? And I was like, oh, it's for chips when you play cards. And they were like, can you show us some card games? So every night before we go to bed, we play poker. And the Annie is push-ups. So that's how you get your chips. So if you want to go to the ATM machine, we call it, you got to do push-ups to go get it. And so how many push-ups you do is how many uh, chips you get. You're just a regular dad of dearest teaching your kids, <laughs> young kids, how to play poker. Hey, hey, Kenny, we've seen, you know, on the news, there have been a lot of stories about, you know, summer camps that uh, can't be held, you know, and, and a lot of kids really love going to camp in the summer. And, and some of these places are legendary and, and they are not able to do it during the pandemic. And you got a basketball camp every year. So what are you, so are you, and I saw something in my email the other day and I looked at it. So are you doing an, like an online basketball camp or a Zoom well, basketball camp? How's it yeah. working? Well, it's the Jet Academy. And Ernie, I was sitting here, Charles, that was part of it. We're sitting here, my camp, I had 700 kids. I had to get, you know, refund in North Carolina. I do my live camp. I go to Europe, I do camps, canceled. And so because of the social distancing and now the spikes, I was like, why should that stop my development if I want to, like, make my junior high school team, my high school team? I want to be better college player. So I just created the first virtual uh, basketball academy, and I just grabbed, like, the NBA guys and the WNBA players. And we basically, for two hours every day, we're your personal trainer. And you, you, get, you can do it on any device. As long as you have cell service or Wi-Fi, you can get on. You just put it up, and you can upload questions. You could um, upload videos while it's live. I thought that was going to be the differentiator because Charles is old enough where he was working out with Billy Blanks, you know. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> he had the, what's that, Dave Fonda, yeah. Tate. Yeah. You know? Don't that forget to breathe. The kids today, they consume information live. You know, every, every social map platform has a live element. So I was like, no, we got to do it live. So I got Kimball Walker, Trey Young, Victor Oladipo, All-NBA All-Star, Brianna Stewart, the MVP of the WNBA, uh, Brittany Griner, more to come. I got a couple announcements later on this week. And we just like, yo, let's two hours. Let's just be on, answer questions, and you part of the Academy, and that's it, jetacademycamp.com. What time does it happen? It happens every morning at um, 8 a.m. PST, 11 a.m. Eastern, and you join in. We start... Sign-ups are now, but you, we start on July 20th, and we open up with Kimba Walker. And so uh, we got Kimba starting it out. Do you have to – is there going to be running? It's going to – it's <laughs> – what I wanted to do – yeah, people going to – you're going to have to do some exercise. <laughs> but, yeah, it, it, if you, if you want to be part of it, you can – people could sign up, I would imagine, and just watch because it's interesting to see what these guys do. And I told all of them, they were like, okay, what's the content? I'm like, no, tell me what you do to work out. Give me every drill you have, and we're going to tape it, we're going to show it, and we're going to film it, and we're going to be live. So I want to see what you do. I don't want to give you eight drills that Kenny Smith did. Like, no, I'll, you do your drills. And, we'll, and I'm going to ask you why. So Kimba was like, I was like, yo, you got to do that pullback where you, you know, that step back where you made guys fall. He's like, cool, all right, no problem. I said, no, but you got to tell everybody when and why you do it. And he's like, 
Well, if Patrick Beverly, I look at him sign in, I'm, I'm stopping the drill in the middle. <laughs> He's like, I'm not letting him know when and why I do it. So it's it's a it's a inside look in the community of those kids. You know, it's, the pandemic and social distancing didn't stop us from getting better. Because I think that's the thing right now. I mean, that's that's the thing that's you see all these numbers going through the roof. And um, and I my question to you to you guys. How confident are you about the about the NBA season actually restarting and finishing the way it is pictured right now? I'd say for me, Ernie, it would be 60-40. 60% it would still and 40% no. If there's a medicine that if you have the virus that doesn't kill you, it just makes you sick. You know what I mean? We have a lot of medics. We have people get a lot of different viruses all the time. And then they're able to take different medicines that are able to keep them alive. Yeah, you may get sick. You may feel a certain way for a a small period of time. But I think that's more important than even maybe a vaccine that cures it. Because it's like, if you're not, if you're like, okay, well, if I get it, I still can take something to suppress the the fatality rate. That is just as important as like the vaccine that you will never get it. We've already seen too in this country that those those remedies have certainly have mixed results, and yeah. and some are ballyhooed as oh this is the thing, and it and it turns out not to be. Chuckster, what are the chances that it restarts July thirtieth and finishes in mid October in the NBA Finals with no roadblocks or little detours along the way? This pains me to say because I. I love my players, obviously. I love my job at TNT, and obviously I got a great deal of respect and admiration from Adam Silver. I don't think we got any chance of finishing this thing. Uh, and that, that hurts because I know a lot of people are going to lose their job and be affected going forward. I just, the way this thing is spiking, and obviously Florida is the worst spot in the world right now, and we're taking... 22 NBA teams to the hot spot. We're taking the WNBA. MLS soccer is going on down there. I just don't see how we can go three months. Like, the chances of us going three months and not having an outbreak, I just think that's impossible. Yeah. Uh, no, Chuck, I hear you. I mean, and I I want to be – you look, I'm as – as upbeat a person as you will and as optimistic a person as you will find. But every time I try to think that, okay, and look, I, I applaud Adam because he's been honest through this thing. And he said, Hey, look, you know, we're dealing with a situation here. That's not ideal. This, the, our, our solution to it is not ideal either, but we're trying to, to do this. Um, and the other day he said, you know, I'm still, you know, pretty confident that we can do it. But he also acknowledged, look, if we have to, we'll just shut it down. Um, part of me is just saying that's going to happen somewhere along that line. You know, we may restart it on July 30th, but I don't know. I don't know, man. You know, I just, and, I, and, I, and I, when I was asking your question, I was actually thinking and talking at the same time. Because I said to myself, Man, what are the chances of us going three months without this thing 
a bunch of people catching it. That, like I say, I think we're going to start. If nothing else bad happens between now and first of all, we're not even going to know anything until these teams get together next week. I, I, like all this stuff talking now is irrelevant. When these guys actually get together, because at some point, you know, they got all these rules where you have to practice by yourself. At some point as a basketball team, you're going to have to practice with other people. Yeah. I mean, you guys have been in this business as long as me. You don't play basketball by yourself. At some point, we're going to have to put five guys, subs, 10 to 12 guys going to be in cl- close proximity at some point in the next couple of weeks. So, but the chances, like I say, I just said that, man, this is three months. Mm. Chances of us going three months and not having multiple, multiple outbreaks. And I think the NBA made them, uh, you know, and they kind of boxed themselves in a corner too. Because, you know, when the one guy got that the virus, we quarantined both teams. So they've already said to me, wait, if one guy takes positive, we've got to quarantine both teams. Uh, that's what they did in the Utah OKC game. When Rudy Gobert tested positive, they quarantined both teams. So now, if that's your parameters going forward, if one player tests positive, we got to take out both teams. Well, I've got to, you know, I need to look at that hundred-page deal because I think it it details that. I don't I don't know that that's necessarily the case anymore. That you would quarantine both teams. That player. But if you don't, if you don't do it, then. You're basically opening it up. That's I, what, yeah, exactly. Yeah. I get what Chuck is saying. I do but too. The most valuable, yeah, I think you know the most valuable part of I heard this right at the start. Charles said, "I'm I'm thinking before I'm about to talk." I was thinking and talking at the same time. That surprised me. It's a Chuck. novel like, concept. <laughs> hey, 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 um, Jet. Let, ask answer me this question, or both of you can. As players, would you resent a teammate who didn't want to go? Um, 20, it's depending what Kenny Smith you ask. 21, 22, 23 year old Kenny Smith, no kids, not married, living by himself. Let's go hoop. You know, let's go hoop. Like my mom lived in, and dad lived in, in, in New Jersey. I was in Sacramento. I wasn't really interacting on a daily basis. Let's go hoop. 30 year old Kenny, I got kids now, married. I got my mom and dad moving closer. Like, now my parameters are different. But 23-year-old Kenny would be mad. 30-year-old Kenny would understand anyone's caution. Well, for me, it would, it would really just depend on the reason, Ernie. Because I think personally, I mean, we're able to look at the big picture. I wish these guys would understand this ain't just about this season. If we don't play basketball this year, these players are going to lose billions of dollars the next couple of years. It ain't just about trying to do this in the middle of a pandemic. I, I said this on here before, and I've said it in public before. This pandemic bill is going to come due in every sport, in every sport. We've been on a gravy train for 30-something years where salaries have been going up, 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 up. Like, I've said to myself probably 10 times, 
well, we can't make any more money. <laughs> I remember the, I remember the first time when Magic made a million dollars. We were high-fiving each other like, I can't believe an NBA player is making a million. I was high-fiving with Dr. J. and Moses. And now the average salary is $8 million. So we've been on a gravy train of great success for 30-something years. But this pandemic has changed every sport, every business in the world. And if anybody think this pandemic bill is not going to come due sometime in the next couple of years, and it's going to come, and we ain't going to make as money. They ain't going to make as much money as they've been making. And uh, that's why I would play because we're in a we're in a business relationship with the NBA, mm -hmm. and we're in a partnership. And that's why Adam, who I admire and respect, has been trying to get this thing done because I saw the numbers saying this thing in uh, it, it's going to cost like a hundred and fifty million dollars just to get this thing done in Orlando, and that's if they play the games. Yep. But man, this this pandemic has been catastrophic for all sports. Announcers, and, everyone. I mean, guys, there's certain announcers in certain sports that they, you know, I, we all know that they get paid by the game. There's the people who at the, you know, now they're the arenas. Like it's a, it's a, you know, people work at the arenas, do the the car, you know, the parking. All of these people who rely the businesses around the arena. The econ economic impact that is made is unbelievable. You know, Kenny, one thing that really scares me is college football mm. because I look at my school, Auburn, and Ernie goes to Georgia. The, 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 well, the whole college is that community. Mm. And I know Georgia is a great program, and they probably make most of their money during the eight home games they have. I know at Auburn, we have 100 we – we're a small little town. And we have 100,000 fans at every game, but we probably have 120 to 25 people in town from Wednesday to Sunday. Yep. And not to have those people fortify that of the economy during those eight weeks, they're going to be catastrophic if we don't have college football. So, Kenny, you're 100% correct, man. This thing has far-reaching arms and... I just feel sad. That whole ripple effect of that, too, because it, it's an excellent point, Jet, about, uh, you know, all the employees who depend on uh, events to happen or to, you know, in the case of college football. I mean, this is this is something that people build their entire years around. Yeah. Are those weekends where they show up and they tailgate. And they see old friends and they watch college football. And there is nothing, there's just nothing like the, that vibe, that excitement in the 100,000 seat stadium. Yes. You know, you just can't, nothing compares with that. Nothing compares to it, Ernie. And you, and you take that away. And I mean, so it's one thing to have, you know, something like that taken away that you enjoy doing, but it's, to your point, it is something entirely different when it's your livelihood that's taken away or a source of income that is taken away um, that you're depending on. Ernie, you know what the funny thing that happened to me the other day? This, no, not the other day. Yesterday. You played the piano. No, that was that. No. Okay. <laughs> that would be tomorrow. Mm -hmm. That would be tomorrow. So I, I, I'm 
you know, I'm going to the grocery store. So I stop in to get gas. Did you wear a mask? Of course. Thank you. Uh, yeah, of course. Uh, you know, I, I'm, 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 I haven't, I've not gone any, any public place without a mask on. Um, I'd rather be on the side of precaution than the side of ignorance. Okay. So I go in, I go into the gas station. The guy goes, hey, Kenny, what's up? I'm like, hey, what's up? You know, that same gas station I go to all the time when I'm, you know, I stopped in. He's like, how you been? I'm like, I'm good, good. How are you? He's like, I haven't seen you. And I, and I thought about it. I said, you know what? I haven't been in here since February. Yeah. It's July. I used to go to, I go to that gas station every day. And I said, well, how's business? He said, it's just not the same. And you're not going into it, Kenny, but we make one-tenth of what we used to make. Yeah, and so think about those people in the, those towns with those football. The gas station. The guy. I haven't been in that gas station in five months. I used to yeah. go there every other. According to Shaq, I should have only gone with the forty dollars. <laughs> I, was, I was just gonna go there too, and you beat me to it. Hey, <laughs> hey, uh, hey, we need to we need to bring in Tim Kiley here as we as we wrap things up with with Kenny the Jets. Oh Smith. my God! You know we began this segment with Kenny showing off two Emmys on his piano. And now look at Tim Kiley just in, a, in an Emmy jungle, it <laughs> appears. Uh, we can barely see him with all this hardware. There you go, brother. There you go. And I'll say you got multiple in the background, uh, too. I like that. I kind of can see you through here, look Jet. Look at that. Man, alive. Hey, Chuck, Ernie, can we agree on one thing? Chance, chances are no, we won't, but go ahead. The, big, the biggest con man on this on this panel right now. Biggest con man, Kenny. No, the biggest is to call it entrepreneurship. <laughs> if, if Zach was here, he would be proud of me. Yeah. I would leave it at that. Being a New Yorker, and I know you're a Mutz fan. You'd think you're a Yankee fan, but you're a Mutz fan. Did you celebrate Bobby Bonilla Day yesterday? Well, without question, Bobby Bonilla Day is always celebrated in the Smith household. Hey, let me tell you something. Out of all the things I've ever seen in sports, that might be the stupidest deal in the history of sports. What's he, is he getting a million every every July 1st until 2035 or something like that? And, and Ernie, it was, uh. they could have paid him, <laughs> see, they could have paid him $6 million and to get out the deal, but they gonna give him a million two from 2011 to 2035. Can you believe that? Man. That's the worst. That that is the worst deal in the history of the world. Not if you're Bobby Bonilla. <laughs> I mean, shout out to Bobby Bonilla. Man. Yeah, shout out Bobby Bo. <laughs> it's good to be Bobby Bo. That's for sure. Yep. So TK, let me get this straight. You were on Levitard and Stu Gotts yesterday, huh? No, he was on uh, Stu Gotts, uh, the Stupidity podcast. Yes. And they asked you, they asked you, which one of us more likely to be late, and you said me. I blew it. I had to tell the Kenny Zebra story later, and then I realized what was I talking about being Chuck being late all the time. No, no, but no, TK, since I moved to a different hotel, my lateness is, and then they making me do NBA TV prior to yeah. doing do an hour show. I have not, there's no issues anymore. You just got to ask how many times he's late for NBA TV now. There you Kenny, go. That was a trick they used. They said, hey, let's put him on NBA TV. Then he can't be late to our show. <laughs> That's exactly what's happening. Yep. I blew him. <laughs> the legendary Tim Kiley, the long-time oh coordinating Tim producer of Inside the NBA and 
star of uh, Stu Gott's Stupidity podcast. Apparently, it took three. Apparently, it was a three-hour conversation. They whittled down to an hour. First of all, neither hey, neither one of them got anything important to talk about for three hours. Let's get that out the way. TK, were were you and Stu Gott's talking for three hours? No, my Wi-Fi kept going out because of the storm, but we did talk for about two. Yeah, and he is—he is all—he is scared to death. Apparently, he said something, and Shaq DM'd him and said he's going to slap him, and he needs me to straighten it out. <laughs> yeah, I heard that Apparently too. He said Tim Duncan was better than Shaq. We know we can't say anything who's better than Shaq. We know that we can't do that. And that's not even a crazy statement. Or he's going to want to slap you now, too. Like, you get to pick your poison on that one. That's a great conversation right there. And you know what? Uh, Shaq, the other night, he calls me. You know, he, he only FaceTimes. He never just calls me. So it's 1 in the morning. So he calls me. He's like, yo, Kenny, what's the Jet Academy? This one, I'm like, Shaq, it's one. He's like, well... I seen it on the thing. It's a good idea, man. I should have thought of that. So I'm like, I'm laughing, right? Literally. He goes, but I got to be involved. I'm like, how are you going to be involved? He's like, well, let's do a, the first 10,000 kids. They get $35 off and call it the Big Shack Code. Bye. And he hung up. <laughs> so and then I, I text him back, Ernie, Chuck, I text him. I was like, you serious? He's like, yeah. They're going to do it all the time. I do it all the time. You want to, I'm the master marketer. I should show you that. I'm the master marketer. This is what you need. The, so we have a big shack code for anybody tell for $35 on. So TK, I am not the con artist. It is Shaq. It is 100% Shaq. Jet, thank you for, for hanging out with us. We'll see you next week, uh, sort of. You know, it'll be one of these virtual things again. But we'll see you then. And uh, we'll be back with more on the Steam Room right after this. Welcome you back to the steam room, man. This has been a great show. Killer Mike, sensational. Always yo, good to talk. man. I'm telling you, Ernie, Killer Mike. I, 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 as much as I love Van Jones, he dropped down to number two <laughs> as I want him as my best guest. And uh, always nice to reconnect with Kenny the Jet and uh, and Tim. Kiley. I didn't say that. I didn't say that. I did. I'll take I'll take responsibility for that. And now uh, it's the old school Chuck's answering machine. You've reached Charles Barkley. Leave a message, America. Hey, Chuck. Hey, Ernie. Loyal Steamer here. One of the cool parts about you guys doing shows during the summer is normally we don't get to hear you guys talk about uh, summer topics, like the Nathan's Hot Dog Eating Contest on July 4th. I believe the record is 74 dogs in 10 minutes, set by uh, Joey Chestnut. My question for Chuck is, how many dogs could you put away in 10 minutes? We're not talking Chicago dogs, of course. <laughs> Thanks, guys. Love you. <laughs> you couldn't put one Chicago dog away. You won't eat those things. Let me just tell you this. I think that is probably one of the most disgusting things watching that hot dog eating contest. You tell me why for you, then I'll tell you why it is for me. Wet bread. Yeah, oh, exactly. That makes me want to throw up, man. Wet bread. That's one of the reasons I don't eat certain sandwiches because the bread gets wet. Yeah. First of all, I love hot dogs. I only put onions and chili on them, Ernie. I, well, you can put mustard and ketchup, but always start with onions. I love onions, and I either put chili on them or just mustard and ketchup. 
and I'm not going to eat them fast, number one. <laughs> I can eat four hot dogs and enjoy the hell out of myself. Comfortably, you can eat four hot dogs. Yes. But I, I'm, I'm a spicy mustard and relish on my hot dog. I've got to be careful when I spoon out the, the relish. I don't want too much of that uh, relish juice. juice because then the bread gets wet and, it, and it's gross, man. Wet bread is one of oh. my biggest pet peeves in the world. Oh, I, it's just disgusting. So anyway, Cap, our producer, threw a few more uh, numbers my way. Some Joey Chestnut records. Glazed donuts, 55 in eight minutes. You can't eat more than five. 55 in eight minutes. I wonder if he was balling those up and putting them in water and eating them. I mean, Ugh, that's, uh, that's disgusting. 121 Twinkies in six minutes. That's crazy. Those things are so dry. You can only eat like, that's the reason they come two in a pack. They're so dry. You can only eat two of them at a time. How many soft beef tacos do you think he ate in 10 minutes? 35. Close, 53. Just transpose the numbers. 53 of those. Oh, how about these non-Joey Chestnut eating world records? And these come to us courtesy of Major League Eating. Bacon. How many strips in a five minutes? 40. 182. Are you serious? <laughs> Would I make this up? And then butter. Oh, somebody ate butter? Yeah. How many quarter pound sticks in five minutes? 12. Seven. Seven? Quarter pound sticks in five minutes. And the thing that I was looking at before we did this segment, I was looking at the person who did it and I saw it. I thought it said Don Lemon. And it's, and I said, the C CNN's Don Lemon did this, but it's, but it's actually Don Lerman, the R and the M. Don Lerman, whoever he is. Ate seven quarter pound sticks in five minutes. So that's the record seven. Yeah. Why are we thinking about breaking it? No, that like I don't even know how that's physically possible. Those quarter pounds, still, man. How do you? I don't even know how you uh, do that. I think I would have to melt it in a microwave and then just drink it. <laughs> and that's probably enough eating records. How about Peeps? Oh, the little uh, sugary little marshmallow, marshmallow things. Yeah. How many uh, peeps do you think Matt Stoney ate in five minutes to set the record? 32. 255. 255 serious? peeps. That's crazy. That is. Thanks, Cap. Cap did a lot of research right there, man. Cap, you did You did good this week. I got to give you credit. That was a lot of fun, man. Always loved doing the steam room. Killer Mike got me inspired. Yeah. Hey, next week, you playing at the Tahoe next week? Playing golf? Yeah, Ernie, I think you should uh, tune in next weekend. I'm going to play very well. Yeah, but we're going to be on the air next next week also. Yes. Do an hour show. And then, so when do you go to Tahoe? Uh, Wednesday. Wednesday. So you're doing the show from out there? Yes. Okay, good. And I'm looking forward to getting back to Atlanta and starting to work soon. That's, uh, yes, indeed. That's the plan. That's what we're making our way toward, and the and uh, the resumption of play in the NBA. Uh, we'll talk about more of uh, more of that next time we get together. Uh, meantime, for the Chuckster, this is Ernie. Thank you so much for uh, for your support, you loyal steamers, and we'll see you next time in the steam room. <laughs>